podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 14th of January. We are brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off your hardware or software package. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft for any of your home or giftware needs Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, it is Thursday, and that makes it Twitter day. So, as ever, I put out the question this morning, looking for some questions for today. And uh, we seem to have uh, 15 or 16 questions. That's quite good. Um, first one first from uh, Football Scribblers, at Footy Scribblers. Why are Premier League clubs so comfortable making mistakes in the transfer market? There's teams like Atalanta who've never had access to that amount of money and yet have a better squad than at least half the Premier League clubs. Look at the biggest signings for the clubs, how many are hits. I mean, it's exa- he's exactly right, but I think he, you've actually answered your own question. The money. Premier League clubs have so much money that they're willing to take risks. They're willing to make mistakes in the market. It doesn't derail your season. If you spend 15 to 20 million on a player and it doesn't work out, like let's look at Chelsea, you know, Havertz and Werner haven't worked out, but Chelsea are still going to finish in the top six. There's no doubt they are. Um, You look at Liverpool, like the signings have worked, but Thiago's barely played all season. And now Jota has been out for a couple of months, but Liverpool stay in, in the top half of the, of the, in, in the top four of the table. I think I think the Premier League has been a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of recruitment for years at this point. Like when you look back at the 90s in Syria and La Liga for example, they all had directors of football and they were all more aggressive in their approach to scouting and recruiting from other parts of the world you know like when when we were watching the premier league in the 90s like if a dutch player arrived it was quite exciting if a brazilian arrived it was like wow a brazilian player like when janinho signed for middlesbrough it was incredible that a brazilian was coming to england um whereas you could watch serie a or you could watch uh, La Liga, and there'd be players from all over the world. So I think those clubs were were quicker to move forward and modernize in terms of becoming global scouting networks. Wenger was really the first to really expand outside of England for a Premier League club. There'd be the odd player here and there, but Wenger was the first to really heavily recruit from overseas. So I think those clubs in... Italy and in Spain and in Germany, they got more used to buying from abroad. And also they had, you know, as, as finances fluctuate, uh, 
a lot of the clubs, just to stay relevant, stay within touching distance of Real and Barca, had to become very smart. And they had to buy players in the knowledge that we're going to buy them in, we're going to develop them, and then we're going to sell them. And that's how we're going to operate. We don't have massive TV money, mega rich owners, huge commercial deals. We have to be self-sustaining. Now, it didn't work for a lot of them. We saw what happened with Valencia. We see the debt that uh, that Sevilla have and Betis. Like, they have had misses. But when you look at a club like Atalanta, that's their big thing, is that they, they buy two streams of players. They buy players that they envisage being in their team long-term, players who fit their system, and then they target uber-talented young players that they can develop and sell without ever really having had to change the team around to fit them in. So, like, I mean, look at Kulisevsky, for an example. He was theirs. They loan him out to Parma. He does really well then, and then Juventus want to buy him. So what they've done is they've used Parma to raise their own asset, like to, to raise the value of their asset. And Parma get very little out of the deal, but for Atalanta, it, they just strike gold again. The same thing with Ahmad Diallo, who's just signed for United. I mean, he's never started a game for them, and they've gotten $35 million for him. So they're very, very clever in how they, how they scout the way they scout multiple streams of players, like young players that they don't ever probably intend on having as part of their team, and then players who they can integrate into the system, maintain their style of play. Like They're also very good at... It's obviously it's, it's heavily analytical because when you see the players they sign, like Marinchuk in the summer, for example, like his creative numbers last season for Spartak off the charts, fits in really well with Papu Gomez and Ilicic and others there who are massively creative. They look at the analytics of, right, it's, for anyone that's seen the, the film Moneyball, when Billy Bean, or Brad Pitt's character, and Jonah Hill's character are having the conversation about what's value, well, getting on base is value. Well, in football, creating chances is value. If you get players in your team that can create chances and players in your team that can finish chances and you combine the two, you'll score goals. That's why they score goals. They've got a bunch of creators and a couple of goal scorers. That's why it works for them. They've got a couple that straddle that as well, like Ilicic scores and creates, but Zubata and Muriel, they're finishers. Papu Gomez, Marinchuk, they're creators. And it, it's just very clever how they've how they've come up with how they've built their team. And there's, like I say, there's other teams that have done this as well. You know, you look at Hellas Verona, they've got 11 players in on loan. Most of their first team they don't own. It was the same thing last year. They lost half their team in the summer, and yet they turn it over because they've got a system and they target players who do specific things because they're very good at identifying what they need. Liverpool are the exact same way. Like, Liverpool are the one Premier League club who don't really make mistakes in the market because they scout heavily from an analytics point of view. Yes, the eye test is important, but they don't take risks. They set themselves price limits on players, and if the price goes beyond that, they just walk away. Now, if it's a one-off, like a Virgil van Dijk, 
then they will never walk away. They will make sure they get that player because nobody else fits that physical or, and, and analytical profile. But for the most part, I think Premier League clubs, I think, number one, managers have too much input, which is partly why you see a lot of mistakes made. And number two, not enough of them have committed to analytical recruitment. You know, we see clubs like Arsenal who've gone this agent-based way, Wolves the same. They make mistakes. Like Fabio Silva, there's no question he's going to be taste talented, but that's a mistake. 40 million on him is a mistake. If you had an analytical department making the decision on how to spend your 40 million, you certainly wouldn't have bought him. There's not a hope you'd have bought him. You'd have bought Pat Sundaka or somebody of that ilk and had money left over. You'd have bought Odson Edward from Celtic, you know. So I think in part it's stubbornness that Premier League clubs aren't willing to make the move, the full move to more analytical-based uh, recruitment. It's In part, it's managers having too much say, whereas it, on the continent, it's all about... For clubs, in, especially in, in a place like Italy, like it is about continuity of structure. So the managers come and go. What they want is they want to have a director of football and a recruitment team that are just there continually so that the club can survive even as managers come in and out. Because we've... Look, there's managers in Italy that have been managing 25, 30 years and have managed 20 teams. You'd never hear of that in England. But in Italy, it is just the way. Managers are much more short-term there. So the recruitment is more... There's people whose job is recruitment, whereas in England, managers are still trying to meddle and interfere. And the truth is, they just they don't know enough about players. They don't see them enough. They don't have the, you know, the depth of knowledge on a lot of players because there just isn't time for them to have, you know, to, to, to fully scout and, and recruit players. Like look at Hodgson. If you said to Roy Hodgson that there's, you know, there's a guy in Austria who's scoring goals for fun. And then there's a guy in, you know, who plays for Watford who's scoring goals for fun. Hodgson will go for the guy for Watford because he'll go and watch him twice. Maybe. And he'll make a decision. He's not going to go to Austria. And Hodgson's not going to sit down with a wise guy with a wise scout subscription and watch Pats and Daka highlights for five hours. He's just not going to do it. So uh, I think in England we're still a bit too, it's still a bit too old fashioned. Is is the basic answer, and it's why clubs make mistakes. It's long winded, and I do apologise. Um, James Houghton with the collapse of French and Chinese TV deals, COVID, and a lot of big players running their contracts down, do you think we will continue to see ever-growing transfer fees or are the days of Neymar and Mbappe fees over? I think for the most part, we will see a little bit of a return to the mean. However, I do think there's going to be special cases. So, for example, if Dortmund decided this summer that they were going to sell Haaland, I think that would be... 150 kind of range um maybe less I, i'm not sure but you know joe felix i think he's that type of player mbappe himself if if he were to sign a new deal with psg and then in a year asked to leave you're, you're going to be talking 250 you're easy going to talk 250 for him at, at 23 or whatever he'd be with that much runway in front of him he's it would be a no-brainer um 
I don't know that we'll see. I mean, the Neymar deal and the Mbappe deal are kind of they're different because Mbappe, they obviously brought him in on loan with an obligation to buy him. And by doing that, they were able to spread the fees out, spread their payments out over a bunch of years. And it, it kind of worked for them and for Monaco. With Neymar, they had to pay the 200 million or whatever it was all in one go, all up front. I don't know that we'll see Neymar-type deals again. I don't know that we'll see anybody have their buyout paid like that at that level again. I, You know, you might see it in the 70, 80, 90 million range, but I don't think we'll see it at that 180 to 200 million range again. I think we'll see Mbappe-type deals because I think there's a group of players like him, like Haaland, Sancho down the line, Joao Felix and others who are going to warrant that type of fee, but it will be done in more of a traditional sense where the payment is spread over four or five years, something like that. Um, Grape Vanith asks, thoughts on Edward Militao to Liverpool rumour, what are his strengths and weaknesses? Um, I really like him. I think he's a very, very good young defender who would fit how Liverpool play. Um, in terms of weaknesses, concentration is the big one with him, but he's a young defender, so concentration is an issue with most young defenders, unless unless the name is Matthias De Ligt. Uh, Militao is 22 years of age. He turns 23 next week. I would very much be in favour of signing him. Really, really think he would fit quite well, especially next to Fabinho in the short term. And next to Virgil in the long term, he's quick, he's dominant in the air, he's a good one one v one defender. He needs to work on his cover defending. He needs to work on his positioning at times. That comes down to concentration. He can get a little bit lax. Having a talker next to him will help. Now, unfortunately for him, Fab's not a big talker, but I think would be comfortable talking to him because they, you know, they're both Brazilian. They speak the same language. They've played together at the national team level. Um. He can play right back. He can also play a little bit in holding midfield. He's comfortable on the ball. I'd, I I would. I'd be very much in favour. And if it's a loan with an option to buy, I mean, it's a no-brainer. If it doesn't work, you send him back in the summer. The option to buy isn't an obligation. So, for me, I think he'd be a really good signing. I know others have some doubts over him, but I think he'd be a really, really good signing. And I put aside you know, the fact that it hasn't worked for him at, at Milan at Madrid rather because look at all the young players that have gone to Madrid in recent years Teo Hernandez barely got a look in now one of the best left backs in the world for AC Milan um, Akraf Hakimi never really got a look in now one of the best right wing backs in the world for Inter Milan um, Vinicius Junior Junior hasn't really worked out for him super talented but they haven't developed him Rodrigo, the same, no better than he was when he arrived a couple of years back. Luka Jovic hasn't worked out. He's now back on loan at Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, they brought in Renier in the summer. They loaned him straight out to Dortmund, and now he's sat on the bench. He doesn't even make the bench a lot of weeks. Um, no club does a worse job at developing young players than Real Madrid. None. Real Madrid don't really care about young players. Young players are there for squad filler for the most part while they buy stars because they they just care about stars. 
they think if you put enough stars in the team, you'll win things. And look, it's it's worked for them. I mean, you know, four European Cups in the last 10 years, three in a row. It does work. You know, you, you throw enough good things on a pitch and, you know, you'll figure it out. Um, Militao, for me, is, is one who makes a lot of sense for Liverpool. He fits playing in a high line. He's comfortable on the ball, dominant in the air. Despite only being 6-1, he wins over 80% of his aerial duels. Now, it is a very small sample size because he doesn't have an, a lot of aerial duels per game, but that is that league. In Portugal, he had more aerial duels per game and he was still winning high 70s. So I would be well in favour of, of signing him. I, I think he's very, very good. Um, best top fight. So this is from KC Design. Best top flight player of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 10s, and so far this decade. And is it possible to pick a best ever top flight player as a result? Granted, it's fairly reductive and oversimplifying an impossible scenario. So I don't think it's possible to pick a best ever top flight player because football was so different in the 60s and 70s. Um. I don't really know where to begin with this. I would say, this is obviously going to be personal opinion and nothing more. Since this decade so far, the best player in the Premier League has been Bruno Fernandes, who signed last January. So he has played the one year that we've had of this decade. And Bruno has been the best player in that time. For the previous decade, I would say Suarez was the best player in that he reached the highest level anyone has reached. But obviously he didn't do it for a, a long time. It was only really 18 months he was at that level. And then he left. Whereas I think Kevin De Bruyne, while never quite reaching the levels of Suarez, sustained it for a long, long time. Half the decade. So I would go Kevin De Bruyne for the 2010s. For the 2000s, it's Cristiano. It has to be. Does it? No, do you know what? It's Henri. It just is Henri because Henri. No, it is. It's just Thierry Henri. It is just Thierry Henri. It, it can't be anyone else. He's the best player I've seen in the Premier League. Um, for the nineties, it's Alan Shearer, and there can be no real debate on it. Alan Shearer was sensational. Southampton, Blackburn, and then Newcastle, just a non-stop goal scorer. Ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. The 80s, I'm going to say John Barnes. Um, maybe a little bit biased, but I don't care. The 70s, I mean, this is where it gets difficult because I'm, I was born in the 80s. So I'm relying more on what I've heard and videos and things like that. I'm going to say that for the 60s, I'm just going to pick George Best. Um I think for the 60s, George Best is the guy. Um, yeah, I'm going to go George Best for the 60s. For the 70s, Kevin Keegan. Kevin Keegan for the 70s. So I'll go Best, Keegan, Barnes, Shearer, Henri, Kevin De Bruyne, and Bruno. And I think that is... I think it's fair, and I can't be been accused of being biased there either, because I've picked two Man United players, a Man City player, 
Uh, I did pick two Liverpool players, admittedly, but Liverpool were dominant in the 70s and 80s, so in all likelihood, the best player did come from them. Uh, an Arsenal player, and then one that played for everybody. Well, not everybody, but three clubs. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with best Keegan, Barnes, Shearer, Henri, Kevin De Bruyne, and, um, and Bruno. Um, Conor Sheehan asks I heard on the pod that a journalist stated Rodgers was on the shortlist for Chelsea manager how do you think he's come how far do you think he's come as a gaffer since becoming Liverpool manager I follow Celtic quite a bit and with respect to some of his success I saw a lot of the same problems there same I mean Celtic were so dominant when he took over that it would have been quite hard not to continue to be dominant. Now, he did take them to a new level of dominance, and there can be no doubt about that. And Some of the football they played was very, very good. But when push came to shove, they were still quite poor defensively. They were atrocious in Europe, and he's never quite figured out how to do the whole European thing. Even this season with Leicester, where they've got I mean, a bunch of plumbers and stuff in the, in the Europa League, they're still not particularly impressive to me. Um, I still think Leicester look at times like they could fall apart defensively, even with the good individual defenders they have. I think it is more a case of good individuals rather than system and scheme. So I think Brendan has improved, um, certainly since joining Liverpool. Uh, His ego has become so much bigger, though. So I think that kind of negates any improvement. Brendan's a, a good manager, not a great one. He's a better coach than he is manager. And I don't know that he has the right mentality for a top job, such as a Chelsea or Liverpool or a Manchester United or a Manchester City. I think he's more suited to, uh, not to call them a second-tier club, but a, a job outside of the big six. I think that suits him a, bit, a little bit more. I think being the underdog suits Brendan. I think Brendan's also better, despite his... Like when when Rogers joined Liverpool, Rogers was all about possession and patience and all this kind of stuff. And then when that didn't work, he threw it all out the window, turned the team over to Suarez, and Liverpool became this counter-attacking monster led by Suarez with Sterling and and um, Sturridge, Coutinho and Gerrard, and they were just phenomenal. And they could carve teams open. Now they were hopeless defensively, so when it didn't work. You know, they generally lost because they couldn't keep anybody out. With Leicester, I think he's more comfortable as well when they are able to counter. And they've got, you know, they've got Vardy, they've got Madison, they've got Barnes, they've got Thielemans, uh quality fullbacks. When but when when Ricardo Pereira's fit, they've got better defenders. I mean, and Didi is a, a really good defensive midfielder. And then they've got three really good centre-backs in Johnny Evans, Cagliostro and um, Wesley Fofana. And they've got a better goalkeeper than Rodgers had at Liverpool as well. So they're more suited to playing how he wants to play in that counter-attacking manner. The problem is when you're managing Chelsea or Liverpool or whoever, counter-attacking will only go so far until the fans start to get the hump. It's fine for Leicester... I mean, they're, they're going to be good enough, and he's good enough that Leicester will beat your Newcastles and your um, Crystal Palaces and teams in in the lower mid lower mid table and the bottom of the t- table. Leicester have the quality 
to go and beat them by just turning up and playing football and imposing their will. They don't obviously have that advantage when they play a top six team or a big six team. Normally, Arsenal this season will put to one side, but the other five, they don't have, like, you put the teams up man for man, and even though Leicester's is, Leicester's is tremendous, largely you'll go the other way. So what they can do is they can turn up, they can bet in, and they can counterattack, and they'll just tear you apart in the counterattack. And that suits Brendan. Whereas if you do that with a with a top six club, you end up getting tagged as a Mourinho, or people get fed up with it. And if it doesn't work, then you know you get ridiculed for not being more commanding at home, not being more adventurous at home. So for me, I think Brendan is better suited to working at a second second grouping club. I'm, I'm trying not to insult them because I, I do really like Leicester, but they're not one of the big six. They're in that next group. Anyway, um, MTUSA asks, if you could change one thing about Klopp's management style, what would you change? I'd like him to be more ruthless. I would like him to be more ruthless. I, I think at times... He can be ruthless with, with players when they step at a line in a disciplinary way, and that's fine. Not on the pitch, off the pitch type of stuff. But, like, he he, he just... There's players that are regularly dreadful when they play, and he just put up with it because they're, you know, they're nice or whatever it is. Like, there's no way he didn't sit and watch Dejan Lovren for four years and think, this lad is awful. Get him out. But for some reason, he put up with it. You know? Um, I'd like him to be more ruthless, and I, I'd like him to play favourites a little bit less. Um, Dublin Demo asks, five players you'd love to see move to the Premier League just to enjoy watching as a neutral aside from Messi. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to leave the obvious ones out. So the obvious ones are Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, Mbappe. We'll we'll park all of those. Um, Federico Chiesa is one. I'd really enjoy seeing him play in the Premier League. I think his game is well suited to the Premier League style of football. Um, I think he's really versatile, really intelligent. He's just the type of player I like watching. Um, Martin Odegaard is another. I think he's another one at Real Madrid that hasn't been developed there. He went on loan at Sociedad and did brilliantly, and then Real brought him back for God knows what reason, and he's just sitting watching. Um, he's another one that I'd like Liverpool to um, to to go and bring in. Um, Jaden Sancho is an obvious one, but I am going to include him because I, I would love to see him in the Premier League. I think Jaden Sancho is such a fun player to watch. That individualistic streak, the creativity, the the want to embarrass a defender is something I love. I love wingers and attacking players who who really want to get joy out of making someone else look bad. And maybe that's terrible, but you, do you know what I mean? Like when we used to, when you watch videos of old players, like like a George Best as an example. Like, he'd beat a man and then go back and beat him again. Sancho does that. Like, he'll beat someone, go one way, and then he'll stop and come back and beat them going the other way. 
And there's something about that that I like because football should be entertaining and they're entertainers. Jaden Sancho is an entertainer. Um, I'd love to see him in the Premier League. Um, Joe Felix is another one uh, I'd love to see in the league. I think he's, I think, just think he's a remarkable talent. I love watching him play. He's got shades of caca about his game. It just, he's great. He just is absolutely great. And even though, like, Mourinho, or Mourinho, Simeone's style is not the most entertaining in the world, he's made tweaks and alterations to get more out of Joe Felix. And it, it is working. It's working very well. Um, that's four. And the fifth one, Eduardo Camavinga. Because I just think over the next, over the next, 10 to 12 years, he is going to become the best midfield player in the world. And I really want to watch that development. I want to watch how he grows and what kind of player he becomes because we've seen him play as a holding midfielder, a center midfielder, an attacking midfielder, a wide midfielder. I think he can become an incredible sitting midfielder, like just dictating games. His passing range is exceptional. He carries the ball really well, but defensively he's really good as well. And he's 17. It's ridiculous how good he is at that age. Um, Camavinga. So, yeah. Chiesa, Odegaard, Sancho, Felix, and Camavinga. They're, they're the five. Um, best football biography or autobiography that you've read? Mm. Um, nobody ever says thank you uh, by Jonathan Wilson about Brian Clough is incredible and there's another one about Clough called Provided You Don't Kiss Me by Duncan Hamilton who covered Clough for 20 years they're both brilliant so if you if you get your hands in either of those um, they're both really really good um, <laughs> Trev Downey on the occasion of Marky Mark Clattenberg's utter drivel about Kloppo who has the best the best weave in football history Conto, Conte, Clapo, or Sadio's new thatch. So Sadio Mane looks like he's had himself a bit of a hair transplant. Um, all three, Trev, well, we, we don't know yet how Sadio's going to look, but obviously Conte and Clapo, theirs have worked out well. But I think you've missed one. I think Rooney, who went from being bold to having a, a side parting uh, and still looking utterly ridiculous, um, I, I'm going to go Wayne Rooney because uh, it was so obvious when he got it done. He shared it on Twitter, in fairness to the lad. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go Rooney. Who is the best pundit on TV, the best commentator on TV, and who are the worst? I think Sunes is the best. I think he's the best pundit on television because he's honest. Now, Obviously, some clubs and some groups of fans take issue with some of the things he said because they don't like hearing it. Like, when he criticizes Paul Pogba, he's generally right. United fans don't like hearing it. Um, in terms of commentators, I mean, if we're talking about proper commentators as in the play-by-play, Clive Tilsley and Peter Drury are the two best, and I think it's a substantial gap to everybody else. Um, the worst, I mean, Martin Tyler is an atrocious commentator, but Ian Dark... Uh, has set a new standard for how to do things badly. And the worst pundit, oh, I mean, that's that that's a stunner. I'm going to say Kenny Cunningham. Um, 
people in England may not be familiar with Kenny's brand of uh, of of punditry. You'll remember him, of course, for uh, his time at Wimbledon and other clubs. But he is he is an atrocious pundit. Guy is saying it's Ali McCoyce for best or worst for best. Ali McCoyce is really good, but he's a co-commentator. He's not an actual commentator. He's the he's the co-commentator. Yeah, if I could have a, a combination, it would be probably be it would be Peter Drury. Or Clive Tilsley and Ali McCoy's. I think that would be ideal. And then you'd throw to the studio. And I, I, I quite like Lineker. I think Lineker's good. Um, I'd want Sunes there. You know who was brilliant was Mourinho. Mourinho was brilliant at it. And I do think managers who aren't gammon tend to make really good pundits because they can explain why things are happening. See, for me, like, when a substitution happens or a team changes shape, I don't want to hear, oh, such and such is coming on. I, I know they are. I can, I can see that they're coming on. I want to know why are they coming on. I want you, as the alleged expert, being paid substantial amounts of money to tell me why is this player coming on for that player? Why is the shape changing that's what I want, either from the commentator, the, the co-commentator who's meant to be there to add this type of insight, or the guy sitting in the studio who've had plenty of time to prepare by the time the end of the game comes, and they can give you a detailed explanation as to you know, what the change was made, why the change was made, uh, what the tactical shift was, why the tactical shift, and what the outcome of it was. That's what I want. I don't want to hear, oh, well, you can see he brought... Yeah, I know I can see he did it because I saw it. I don't need you to tell me about it. I want you to explain to me why. That's what you're there for. Um, yeah, I mean, Lineker... Rafa Benitez is very good at punditry. Um, so I'll take Rafa. I think someone like Jonathan Wilson, who I mentioned, who wrote that that brilliant book on, on, um, on Clough, I think he would make a great pundit. I think I think there's certain journalists, uh, like a Sid Lowe, for example, who would do a far better job than most of the ex-pros. Like Gab Marcotti, for example, I think is very, very good. And you see him on ESPN, and then you compare him to like Steve Nichol, Shaka Hislop, uh, Craig Burley. They're awful. Gab Marcotti is excellent and, and breaks things down a lot better. So I, I think the ideal thing would to be would to have would be an ex-player, a journalist, and an ex-manager. If you can get me those three things on the panel with a good presenter like Lineker, I'm happy. And then, like I say, we'll take Ali McCoist and um, and either uh, Peter Drury or, or Clive Tilsley as the lead commentator. You don't want Tyler. You don't want... Carragher, you don't want Robbie Savage or Danny Murphy or Danny Mills or Garth Crooks or any of these cabbages. You don't want any of them. They're all dreadful. Um, but yeah, I've gotten sidetracked. But that's what it is. Anyway, Willology, rank the managers on the Chelsea shortlist uh, from Christian Falk from most likely to see succeed to least likely to succeed. Okay, so went over this yesterday i believe it was and um 
he mentioned Nagelsmann as well, which was interesting. I don't think Nagelsmann is is in is likely because it's middle of the season. Of the ones he mentioned, Tuchel, Allegri, Rogers, Hasenhutl. I think Allegri is the most likely to succeed because he's the one we have seen succeed the most. Uh, multiple Serie A titles with both Milan and Juve. Uh, two Champions League finals. I think Allegri is the most likely to succeed. Then it's it's Tuchel versus Hasenhutl because I think they're both better managers than Brendan. I think Brendan is the least likely to succeed because I think Brendan's ego will bristle when someone at Chelsea tries to tell him what to do, which is what they what they tend to do. If you look at Allegri and Has, uh, sorry, Allegri and Tuchel, they've already been at big clubs with interfering owners, interfering factions around. They've been told what to do. They've been handed the players and told this is the player you're having. You're not having anyone else. Um, so I think. That's got to be key because I think at Chelsea there is quite a bit of interference. Uh, I would say Tuchel is second. Now, Tuchel is obviously... Tuchel's more pragmatic than Hasenhutl, and that's where I think the issue would be for Hasenhutl. Hasenhutl is very dogmatic in his approach, and he's going to want to play his way, his system, his style. And I don't know that... Do you know what? I'll swap it. I think he's he's at the bottom because... I don't think Chelsea have the players to play Hasenhutl's style of play. I don't think they have the front two to work how he wants them to work. They definitely don't have the two behind. I don't think they have a central midfield pairing that works either way. I would say it goes Allegri, Tuchel, Rodgers, Hasenhutl, because I think Rodgers is a little bit more adaptable in how he uses players. And you could also see Rodgers taking... Timo Werner, like if you take his Leicester team, take Timo Werner, you plug him into the Jamie Vardy role. It, it's not ideal, but it will work. Um, you need someone in that Harvey Barnes role. Okay, here's Christian Pulisic. You need someone in that Mark Albrighton role. Okay, here's Callum Hudson Adoy. Uh, you need a creative player in the mold of um, of James Madison. Okay, well, you can have Zayic, who'll, who'll comfortably play in that role for you. Mason Mount becomes your Telemans. They don't have the Ndidi type, but Kante will do somewhat of a, of a, you know, a proxy imitation of him. Uh, I think Rodgers would do okay there, actually, with, with the players. I think he could have fallings out. But, I mean, Tommy Tuchel's going to fall out with everybody and, and burn the club to the ground, so it won't matter. But, yeah. Allegri, Tuchel, Rodgers, and Ralph. And I love Ralph. I just think Ralph's style wouldn't work with the Chelsea group of players. As for Nagelsmann, I would put him behind Allegri. And maybe behind Tuchel. He's probably easier to get on with, but there's less proof that he's a good, like as as good a coach as Tuchel. Uh, so yeah, I'd put, put Nagelsmann third if we're adding him to the list. Um, next question. Adam Hanlon, uh, I can't think of a football question, so a work question. Tell us how the two-footed pod came to be, what goes on behind the scenes day-to-day at Hendrick HQ to prep for airtime, and how much of your day does full-time podcasting take up? Um, I mean, it depends. Like, I've, I'm a little bit notorious for not preparing for podcasts and just sort of, you know, 
turning up, asking what we're talking about, and just going from there. For this one, I do put in more work, but with a lot of the what I do is watch games. So today, I've seen every Premier League game this season, and and there's been a lot of bad games, but I've suffered through them, and I take notes and and try and you know have as much information to call on as I possibly can when I'm trying to run through games uh, on a Monday or Tuesday. Um, how much time a day? I mean, four hours maybe for podcasts and then, you know, prepping and, and then afterwards set, setting up tweets and all that kind of stuff. Maybe four hours a day. I, it could be, it can be more. It depends. Like some days I'll do four podcasts. If I do an AI scouted with Carl Matchett on AI Pro, I mean, that can be two hours on itself. This can be an hour and a half, an hour to an hour and a half. If I do something else, if I do an old school with God, with gags, that can be another hour and a half. So it does just depend on who I'm talking to and what the podcast is about. And obviously I do other bits and bobs as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, most of the prep work is actually just watching games. Um, when it comes to stuff like gossip and stuff like questions, I try not to prepare in advance. I try not to read the gossip so I can just react to it. I try not to read the questions so I can just react to them. It's why often if someone asks me a more complicated one or something that needs a bit of thought, I have to do it the next week because I actually do want to put a bit of thought into it. Um, often on Wednesdays, I'll put a bit of, you know, I'll put work in in the mornings to try and come up with lists or whatever we're doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, podcasting probably four hours and then probably another two, three hours writing each day. So, you know, it, it does take up a, a lot of time. Um, Alex Wilson asks who do you think wins the PFA player of the season the young player of the season the golden boot and the golden glove oh well the golden glove I think Ederson will win because I think most teams had such poor starts defensively that I think City will will win that for him golden boot I think Salah's going to win it I do Um, player of the year It'll be Bruno or it'll be De Bruyne. It'll be one or the other. It all depends on who has the better second half. I think they've both had really good first halves to the season, so just depends who has the better second half. Young players is difficult. Um, there's a, probably an argument for Rashford, who's been really good. And obviously United are top. Phil Foden will definitely have a, a case. Outside of them... Harvey Barnes, is he is he eligible this year? He might be too old this year. I'll go Rashford or Foden. I, I probably Rashford's a bit older. I'd give it to him. I think he'll get it based on being that little bit older. Um, King Mo Eleven LFC Andy Robertson as a alternative at CB. Would it work with Milner or Simicus? At left back, I mean, the obvious one would be if you had Simicus, you'd, you'd be happier because you'd have an out-and-out -out left back. With Milner, you lose quite a lot going forward, and obviously he's very, very slow. So, I think I think it could work. Look, Andy Robertson's only 5'9", so he's not the tallest player in the world, but he's very aggressive, he's super competitive, and he's quick. So he would he would give you everything he has. And I think against certain teams who aren't going to bombard you across as Andy Robertson absolutely could do a job there. But the preference would be to have Simicus as the left back. 
rather than James Milner. Uh, Neil Purcell has sent me from Skybet. It's time to put together Liverpool's all-time Premier League eleven. So as things stand, they've picked seven players. Uh, Allison in goal. Trent at right back. Robbo at left back. No problem with any of those three. Virgil is one of the centre-backs. No problem there. They've gone with Jamie Carragher as the second centre-back. We're going to take him. We're going to put him to one side. It's Sammy Hippia. I'm sorry, it just is. Uh, and, I, and I say that as someone that adores Daniel Agger, but I think you have to give it to Sammy. If Agger could have stayed fit, it would have been him. He's comfortably the most talented centre-back we'd had at the club pre-Van Dyke. Um, so Trent, Hippia, Virgil and Robertson. Um, they've got Gerrard as one of the three midfielders. Obviously, that's a, that's fine. You're not going to get any arguments there. They haven't picked the other two. Um, it comes down to Fabinho or Mascarano as the holding midfielder. I'd probably go Fabinho because I think he's a little bit better on the ball. And I, I love Mascarano, but I'll go Fabinho. And then the third midfield spot, I mean, Alonso, Coutinho, I'll go, go Alonso. I'll go Alonso. I think Alonso was great for, you know, for three of the five years he was at the club, key role in the Champions League win. I'll, I'll go I'll go Alonso. So Alonso, Fabinho and Gerrard as a midfield three. And then up front, they've got Salah on the right-hand side. That's obvious. Mane is going to come in on the left-hand side. And the number nine is Luis Suarez, and there's no arguments over that. Bobby's great. Torres was great. Luis Suarez is better than them all. Um, so that would be that. Uh, FC Molman asks, with Upamecano having a £42 million buyout in the summer, do you think Liverpool will be priced out of the move by other teams offering massive wages? No, because I, I think he's the type that we'd be comfortable paying high wages on. Um, and he's also, like at €42 million, Euro, I mean, that's well below his market value. He's easily, easily a £65 million centre-back. If Ruben Diaz is a £65 million centre-back, he's a £65 million centre-back. So I think what you're saving in the fee, you can make up in wages, you know. So I, I think it's fine. I, I absolutely think it's fine. I, I think he's one we'd comfortably... Pay the buyout and pay the wages for Emmett, aka Emmett, aka Emmett. I always mess his name up. Sorry, mate. What three players can you see realistically taking over from Liverpool's front three over the next couple of seasons? Um, I can. I think Haaland is is a possibility. I do. I, I think Haaland is somebody that realistically Liverpool could go and get. Not this summer, maybe. But next summer, when that buyout clause kicks in, I think he would be um, would be high on the list of players Liverpool would want, and I do think that is a realistic move for the club. Um, Oyarzabal from Sociedad is one I'd be very interested in. I think as a Mane type of player who's a creator and a scorer, I think. He's someone that Liverpool should very much be keeping close close tabs on. Super intelligent player, good dribbler, good creator, passes well, crosses well, and finishes well. Um, I'd very much be in favour of seeing him arrive at the club. And the third role, I mean, if we're assuming it's not Diogo Jota, um, 
what we're looking at here is, you know, Liverpool have a creator in Bobby, a creator goal scorer in in Mane, and a goal scorer in Mo. Now, admittedly, Mo is the most creative of the three, but bear with me for a second. We're bringing in a goal scorer to replace the goals that Mo Salah gives you. That is, without question, Haaland. The creator goal scorer that Mane is, that would be a Yarzabal. So you're looking to replace Bobby, even though it's someone to play in Mo's position. Now, Jota's a goal scorer. He's not as much of a creator. So, I mean, again, I mentioned Odegaard earlier on. It could be him. He would fit in in that mould. Um, I think if you're bringing in Haaland, you're probably not getting Sancho unless you get them in different summers. I'll just say Jota because he's at the club already. He's I mean, Federico Chiesa would be the one I'd want. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, Chiesa would be the one I'd want. Chiesa, Haaland, and, and Oyarzabal would be the three I'd want up front. But Chiesa's just gone to Juve, so that probably rules out him uh, leaving anytime soon, if ever. So, yeah, I'll go. I'll go with, with Jota because he's at the club already. Um, it does change the dynamic of the three, obviously, and it does change the attributes of the three. But I think I, I do you know what? I'll just go Odegaard. Get me the creator. Get me Odegaard as a creator. Haaland and, and the Yarzabal, and I'll be happy enough. I do think though that the the shape will change. So that's where I would differ. I think the shape will change, and Liverpool will move to more of a four-four-two. In which case, Oyarzabal on the left, Odegaard on the right, Jota and Haaland through the middle, and then two in midfield is what I expect. Um, I think this is the last question then. Let me just see. We did that one. We did that one. Yeah, this is the last question. So this one is from uh, Lee Johnston, Lee Johnston 75. Thoughts on Mark Clattenburg's comments about Klopp and Fergie's Man United. So basically, Mark Klatz, Clattenburg has uh, criticized Jurgen Klopp for comments made about Manchester United getting a lot of penalties. And then he's come out and said that when he was refereeing uh, Alex Ferguson's Manchester United there did tend to be some favourable decisions given to Manchester United. Um, I don't really care what Mark Clattenburg has to say, and I don't think Kloppo will either. I think his comments show the mentality of the man. I mean, this is a guy who, at his peak, in his uh, the, the, you know when he was the top referee in the country, walked away to go and take a big paycheck in China. So... You know, he drives around in his Range Rover with his Clats license plate. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a clown. Um, I don't agree with him that Klopp sounds like a hypocrite for suggesting United players are looking to win penalties because Liverpool players don't look to win penalties. We saw Pogba tell Luke Shaw dive next time. We saw him outright do it. Uh, we saw Anthony Martial against United throw himself to the ground. We've seen Bruno do it. We've seen Rashford do it. United do look for penalties. That's it's it's not a knock on United. I'm not suggesting 
it's a bad thing. In fact, quite the opposite. I, I think it's almost admirable that they do it. Now, they're a little bit too flagrant for my tastes, but they try and gain every possible advantage. And I, I would like Liverpool to be more cynical. You know, he, he's made allegations there. He says Mo Salah and Mane are just as capable of employing similar tactics. Let's have a look then. Mo Salah gets pulled and dragged more than any player in the league and constantly tries to stay on his feet. Because when he does go down, even when he goes down legitimately, he gets hammered for it. Mane... What, what was it? What game was it? Was it Newcastle where where the ball hit the post and Mane, the ref, the, the goalkeeper wrapped his arms around Mane's leg to stop him getting to the ball? Is this man for real with these criticisms? Newcastle, that was the... New was Newcastle. Carl Darlow, wasn't it? Yeah. Wrapped his arms around Mane's legs to stop him getting to the ball. Like, and nothing was given. So, Mark Latton, he was a, he was a bad referee in his prime. He was constantly causing controversy uh, for different reasons. He refereed a bunch of big games, including a Champions League final, and just made himself out like, like a clown. Um, I I just, I don't know. Like, you know, he's most well known for the inappropriate language against John Obi McHale, which I think he, he eventually got the goal clear from. But I mean, who, does anyone believe the PGMOL when, when they say that they, they looked into it? I certainly don't. Um, no, I, I I wouldn't put any stock into what Clattenburg has to say, especially, especially when in the same interview, he's admitting to showing bias towards Manchester United in the past. So, you know, he's just, he's a bit of a clown. I mean, he is just a bit of a clown and the Premier League is better off without him. Because Mark Clattenburg wanted to make the games about Mark Clattenburg. He wanted to be... He thought he was on the same level as players. Like, he thought he should be in every way centre stage. Um, you know, he's it just he, he's just not for me. Um, right, that's it for the questions. We'll wrap up quickly with some gossip. Um, the representatives of Manchester United and England midfielder Jesse Lingard have held talks with Nice over a loan move with an approach expected in the next week. That would be a good move for him. It, I always like seeing English players take the chance to go abroad. Um, and I think he'll really enjoy living in Nice as well. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Get his career back on track away from the glare of the English media. I think that could be quite good. Um, Newcastle boss Steve Bruce retains the support of Mike Ashley despite fans calling for him to be sacked. Of course he does, because Mike Ashley doesn't care about Newcastle Football Club. He only cares about having the cheapest, most cheerful option. And Steve Bruce is cheap and cheerful, and is a yes-man. Uh, Arsenal's former Germany midfielder, Mesut Ozil, has, has offered to forgo some of the £7 million he's due to earn before the end of the season so he can cut short his contract and leave this month. About time. Um, meanwhile, the Gunners, England under-20 midfielder, Florian Balogun, has agreed to join RB Leipzig. I don't know if that's true, but I know that they're one of the clubs that have made him an offer. He's rumoured to have about a dozen offers for next season, both English clubs and those abroad, as his contract runs out and he looks set to leave Arsenal. 
I think it's a big blow for Arsenal. It's another huge young talent. And when you look at the ones they've let go in, in recent years, like Daniel Mallon, Jeff Rene Adelaide, uh, Benesser, Serge Gnabry, uh, it's just, it, it, it's not sustainable to continually lose all these immense young talents. Um, Liverpool are planning a summer move for Brighton's English defender, Ben White. I would greatly doubt that they are, but that, that's come from the echo. It's come from the fellow who said that uh, any move for Thiago was rooted in fantasy. So they, the fellow just doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Uh, Manchester City and Spain defender Eric Garcia has agreed personal terms with Barcelona. But a transfer is some way from completion. If he's agreed personal terms, the pre-contract for the summer doesn't need to be a transfer. Uh, Barca boss Ronald Koeman is confident of signing two Netherlands internationals. Memphis Depay and Ginny Wijnaldum for free this summer. Um, well, Ginny and, and Memphis are very, very close friends, and it would make sense if they, you know, want to play together that they could go somewhere. I don't know that Barca is the right move for either of them, given the club is a mess. There's likely to be a new a new manager because there'll be a new president, and the new manager might not want either of them. But at the same time, they're both really good players who can fit in and, and play multiple positions. Um, Frankie De Jong is already there so they'll have a an international teammate there they'd be two great signings for any club let's just put it like that Memphis is one of the best young versatile best versatile forwards in the world Ginny's one of the most versatile midfielders in the world one of the most versatile players full stop they're both very very good players so yeah I, I'd be in, I'd be in favour of any club signing the pair of them I'd be in favour of Liverpool keeping Ginny and signing Memphis I think that would work well um, Tottenham manager Jose Mourinho it's Jose Mourinho I don't know why I keep saying Jose it's a habit of a lifetime it's Jose Mourinho insists England midfielder Harry Winks will not be sold or leave the club on loan this month I mean I, I can see why he wants to keep him because obviously he's a good player and obviously he's an important backup to the squad but for Winks it is going to cost him a spot in the England squad for the, the Euros that's just how it'll be I'd imagine um, Everton defender John Joe Kenny could leave in the January transfer window with Burnley interested. He makes sense for Burnley. They need a right back and he needs to go and play somewhere now. It's a shame he's not getting an opportunity at Everton. I don't know if that's going to be a loan or a permanent deal, but I think for both Burnley and Kenny, it's a deal that makes sense. Everton need a right back though, so it's weird that they aren't using the one they have. AC Milan have held talks with the agent of former Juventus striker. Mario Mandzukic over a move for the 34-year-old Croatian who is available on a free transfer. Um, I mean, Mandzukic can still do a job as long as that job is 15 minutes off the bench. Go and bully the life out of a centre-back and don't don't ask him to run too much into the channels. He'll be fine. Um, Celtic and Rangers both want Liverpool's 23-year-old Nigerian forward Teyu Awanyi, who is on loan at Union Berlin. Well, I I don't know what the issue with him is. I mean, he's he's obviously never been able to get a work permit to play in the UK, which has been why he's never gotten his chance at Liverpool. He is very talented. I'm surprised it hasn't gone better at Union Berlin for him. Um, I don't know whether Rangers and Celtic will be looking to get his loan cut short now or bring him in in the summer. Uh, but as long as they're willing to pay, I'm sure Liverpool will be willing to do business. Liverpool will want to sell him at this point because 
it's just been an endless stream of loans and he's not in the first team uh, reckoning at Liverpool. Former Arsenal and West Ham midfielder Jack Wilshere has impressed Bournemouth boss Jason Tindall and the Englishman could earn a short-term contract. I mean, I, I want to see Jack Wilshere do well. He's only 29. He's a wonderful talent, but his career has just been ruined by injuries. I wouldn't touch him, personally. Uh, English winger Jack Clark is set to sign on loan for Stoke from Spurs. I had said I'd love to see him go somewhere like Burnley. Um, he's a very, very talented player, but he's never gotten a run at Spurs. Ford Cengiz Under is playing for his Leicester City future with the club to assess the 23-year-old's impact at the end of the season. That's always been the case. I mean, he's on loan with an option to buy, so that's always been the case. It's a bit of a pointless, uh, pointless news story. Brighton's 20-year-old English defender Alex Cochran, who was on loan at second division Belgian club Union St. Gallus, is a target for Sunderland, who are under new ownership, new management, all that. He's meant to be very, very talented, so it would make sense for them to get him in. Um, and finally, Middlesbrough have recalled Stephen Walker from MK Dons and could allow him to loan uh, to, to go on loan to another club before the end of January. I assume he wasn't playing for MK Dons. I have no idea who Stephen Walker is, uh, but I wish him all the best um, and hope he does very, very well. And that is it. Before my voice goes completely, that is the show. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always. Thank you to Foxton for the title music. Check out EPLindex.com. Check out the blogs on LibertyShield.com. Check out Home of Hopcroft and Liberty Shield for the great services and products. And uh, thanks for listening. I will see you tomorrow. Take care. Goodbye. Podcast Network.